Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, podcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza, and I am so delighted to have the incredible Anne Aslett, the CEO of the Elton John AIDS Foundation, joining me today. I am going to get into her entire life story. We are going to hear about her confidence journey, what it's like to work with Elton John and be in charge of a foundation that is saving the lives of millions around the world, right after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so excited for you all to meet my next guest. So I met Anne Aslett for the first time this March when I had the opportunity to take the auction for the Elton John AIDS Foundation and was struck by this incredible force of a woman. So we are going to learn everything there is to know about Anne. She's going to tell us all about her confidence. But first of all, welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you, Lydia. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be here, too. When I was reading through your bio, there was something that really struck me, and I want to read it out before we start at the beginning of your life. Under Anne's tenure, the Elton John AIDS Foundation has become the fifth largest AIDS funder globally and saved the lives of five million of the most marginalized people in the world and raised awareness of HIV amongst more than 100 million people. What does it feel like to hear those words next to your name and know of such an incredible impact that you've made on the world? I mean, I think there's still a kind of a disconnect between what you've just read and how I see my role and how I see what we do. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit in our conversation. I'm very forward focused. So sometimes I have to really stop and remind myself or be reminded, this is where we've come. This is what we've achieved. Because every time we hit another milestone, I'm like, that's great. Now what's next? More work to come. (laughs) Of course, it's enormously humbling to think that we've been able to do this work. It's extraordinary. So let's start at the beginning of the life of Anne, who has now done all of this incredible work. Where did you grow up? Obviously, you're not American, I can tell, with a a British accent, similar to my mother's. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Sydney, in Australia. Mm -hmm. My mom is Australian. My dad was a Kiwi. And the first few years of my life, we lived in Australia, in Sydney. And it was a very kind of freewheeling, easy, lots of time outside, obviously, lots of unsupervised time. (laughs) Different style of parenting. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, different style of parenting. And I had two older brothers who were always getting into huge amounts of trouble and dragging me along with them. And it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. And then I actually became unwell. I had a heart issue when I was a little girl. So I had a big, big operation. And so a lot of my memories now, because we left Australia when I was still pretty young, a lot of my memories now are also about that time, but not in any particular sequence, just fragments of it. So it was mixed. It was fun and sunny and open, but then there were bits of it that were also quite intense and serious. And how young were you when that took place? I was five. And so leading up to that, I mean, you don't have that many memories, I think, of the very early years, maybe just sort of feelings more about what that looked like. So five years old, you came out of that. And what were you like? How were you changed even at such a young age? 
I don't know how I was changed then, but I've reflected since then and have been told by doctors, because it was an unusual operation at that stage, that it gives you a certain fighting spirit, Mm -hmm. even if you don't obviously intellectually understand it as a little child like that. There's an impulse, there's an instinct to fight. And I think I have heard, and it's a well-documented fact, that girl babies fight harder than boy babies when there's a challenge when they're born. So I don't know whether it's related to that as well, but I think it certainly gave me that. It gave me a sense of, I can fight for things. Yeah, and fight you have, wow. So you left Australia and went where? My dad was a management consultant, which Mm -hmm. has also had quite a big bearing on some of the things I've done. And he was offered a job in a big consulting firm whose headquarters were in London Mm -hmm. and said to my mom, what do you think? And this was in the 70s. And I don't think Sydney was a terribly cosmopolitan or exciting (laughs) place in the 70s. And she said, yeah, let's go. (laughs) And we never went home. And so we made our lives here and, and life here for me as a kid was a very different environment. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd gone from being a little Australian girl to being in this rather posh girls school in London and all the words for everything were different. It wasn't homework. It was prep. It wasn't a class. It was a form. And so I had to sort of learn a new language and adjust, but I loved it in the end and made some good friends. You've already at this point faced a serious thing at the age of five to have gone through that. But then you go to a school that's different from where you sort of identified and and had kind of come from. When you moved into those sort of high school years, do you think you felt confident in who you were? I mean, you'd already overcome something quite large as a very young child, but then even having to assimilate into a different culture and school when people are saying words aren't the same must have been kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it was because I had two elder brothers. They were sort of going through middle school before me. So Mm -hmm. I got a lot of tips from them. I think I'm quite observant of people and I'm quite a good mimic. And so, you know, that helps. You hear people talking in a certain way, talking about things in a certain way, and you can kind of assimilate it and pick it up. But still, I think I was very clear that I was Australian and I had come from a different place. Do you still think about Australia as your home? I ask this because I grew up in Louisiana, but I haven't actually lived in Louisiana since I was 13. I went to a boarding school in Connecticut. But I still, especially as I've gotten older, I think I identify more in many ways. I tell people all the time that I'm from the South. And they're like, but you live in New York. You've lived in New York for 23 years. And I am a New Yorker. There's no question about it. But the older I get, there's something about it that always makes me think about the fact that this was where I'm from. And you say Australia, like I wonder even if you left at such an early age, do you always tell people you're Australian or do you think of yourself as British having lived there for such a long time? Well, I tell people I'm Australian, but my husband regularly teases me and says, you can't get away with that anymore. You've lived here pretty much your entire life. I'm opportunistically Australian, I should say. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, when when the rugby is on or uh, uh, the Olympics or something, I'm opportunistically Australian. But I think it's true to what you say. I have always felt, and I'm sure people, you know, with dual nationality feel this all their lives. There are definitely things that I look at in British culture and think, that's not me. And equally, there are things I look at in Australian culture, and I don't consider Australia my home at all, obviously, but I do identify with them sometimes. So talk to me, you leave high school. Do you leave England at this point or do you stay in England to go to college? No, stayed in England to go to college, studied English literature, Mm -hmm. wasn't a particularly 
happy period of my life, I would say. It's interesting. I have two children now who are 20 and 24. And Mm -hmm. in various ways, through A-levels, which is the last exam you do um, in high school, and one at university, living through COVID, it reminded me actually, their study was hugely disrupted. It reminded me, you think of it as being a glorious and wonderful time, but actually that early part of late teenagerdom and early part of your 20s, there's an awful lot of confusion and insecurities. And I was at a very very competitive university. And I can't say I was happy. I didn't enjoy it particularly. And then came back to London and did some work. I was very keen on writing. I wanted to be a journalist. I got a job with Condé Nast, the publisher, and did some work there and didn't find it hugely fulfilling and wanted to have an adventure, wanted to go somewhere mm-hmm. and have an adventure and be out of this you know, rather safe kind of middle-class bubble that I'd been living in for a long time. So where did you go? Where did the adventure take you? It took, it took me to the Middle East. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was most unusual because a lot of my friends had gone to Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. was a big Thailand yeah. and being on a beach. <laughs> Everyone's on the beach, right, in thing. Phuket, of course. And then there were, you know, quite a few of my friends who went to Australia. And I said, you know, that's a bit like going home. That doesn't feel like it to me. And I met someone who was very British, who has subsequently become my husband, who I think had a bit of a Lawrence of Arabia complex and wanted (laughs) to see the desert and wanted to see. And I was kind of agnostic. I just thought, I don't care. I just want to go and immerse myself somewhere else. So yeah, so we went to all the way through Egypt and Jordan and Israel and Lebanon. And Oh, what an adventure. What was it like at that time traveling as a woman through there? I've done a little bit. I went to Saudi Arabia, but I haven't traveled extensively even now in that region. What was it like at that time, it must have been completely different traveling as a woman. It was really different. And so we landed in Amman in Jordan. Mm. It was our first stop from the UK. And I remember waking at five o'clock in the morning and hearing the muzzin, hearing the call to prayer, mm. and then going downstairs that morning. And we were you know, boyfriend and girlfriend at that stage. And going downstairs in the morning and a waiter laying a place for my boyfriend and not for me, and sort of looking at him to say almost, is it all right if she can eat type of thing? Is she joining you to eat? And of course, I was absolutely outraged by this. (laughs) It was an interesting exercise in understanding how different people see the world and why, and Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be for me, but I talked to a lot of Muslim women then, especially in Jordan, who didn't feel constrained in any way and enjoyed their lives and so on. But it was a big learning experience as well. Yeah. Travel is such an incredible thing. I feel like the Australians, since you are obviously Australian, do it the best. (laughs) You know, they're just, it's sand in your shoes, go travel, see. And it is really the best way, in my opinion, to become more confident because you're so out of your comfort zone, whether it be you don't speak the language or you look at a sign that doesn't have anything that even looks recognizable. All of those things really make you trust yourself and your gut. And sometimes you find that your gut leads you astray, but other times it it goes in the right direction and you gain more confidence as a result of putting yourself in those situations. 100%, yeah. 
So then you go back to London and do you feel like you were ready to have a little bit more of a stable time at this point? So you go back to England? A little bit more of a stable time and did quite a lot of journalism from the travels that we'd had. And then my husband very much wanted to work in and subsequently has had a career in television. And so we developed various ideas for television documentary series and so on. That was wonderful and very exciting. And I thought this would, you know, in the way that you do in, in your 20s, your 20s <laughs> I thought, oh, this will just roll on into a great big. And of course, it, it sort of dried up after a couple of projects. You're like, um, BBC, here I come. <laughs> it, totally. You know, here I am. I'm going to be the next, I don't know, Alan Yentorp or something. <laughs> so I continued to do some of the journalism and tried two or three different things, had a lot of kind of side gigs on writing marketing materials and that sort of stuff and ended up working for and kind of co-running an information news service. This really dates me because this is in the days before you could Google anything um, and find out who, I lived where, in those what, days when, too. how. <laughs> I actually know. I, I, I know those days. I remember those days too, <laughs> vaguely. So uh, we ran this service which told you who, when, what, where, how, and it went to news agencies like Reuters and AP, and then it went to all the, what we call the the broadsheets and the tabloids in the UK and to Condé Nast and to a range of other publishers. And it was enjoyable and fulfilling, but something was missing. And I was approached by someone in the fashion industry in Paris because we covered sport, corporate communications, politics, uh, fashion. And I was approached by someone in Paris who said, look, we don't have anything like this for the fashion industry in Paris. And we are you know, the French fashion industry is the fashion industry. Yeah, there is no other, yes. There is no other. And we should have something like this. And would you be prepared to come over to Paris and set it up? And I thought this sounded amazing, an amazing opportunity. And this is a good indication of the sort of stupidity of youth. I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to do it. My boyfriend said, what the hell are you going to go and work somewhere else? And how is this going to work? And and I sort of thought by that stage, you know, I want to know where my life is going. We'd been together for a couple of years, more like three years. And I, I wanted to know where that was going. And I said, well, let's see. I'm going to go. I'm going to do it for a bit. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And got there and started to do some work for this organization and realized that I still had an Australian passport and I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get a job. I couldn't be registered as an employee in oh, France. No. Oh, no. So I did consulting work for them. I helped with runway shows at the Louvre for Dior and some of the other companies and had a blast. But it was, again, this wasn't the next thing that was just going to roll out and be. But it was, as you say, in the same way about travel. I lived on a barge in the middle of the Seine opposite the Musée oh d'Orsay. I learned to speak French properly. And, you know, there was a lot of sort of feeling like I'm just here on my own. And I've sort of in this very grand way said goodbye to everybody. And I've got to figure out how I make this work, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it was a great, it was a great experience. I love the stories of when you're in your 20s, when you can kind of look back on those early years and think about the things that 
seemed so huge. I remember moving to New York City and I was living in a first floor studio apartment, which I didn't realize meant that there was only one room. I thought that there was certainly <laughs> a bedroom hiding behind some door. But I remember I had this massive duffel bag and I pulled it up all the stairs. And I remember trying to get the door open with the key. And, you know, it was a new key, so it was really finicky and I couldn't get it open. And I remember standing there thinking, what am I going to do now? I can't leave all of my earthly possessions on this landing. I have to get this key open. And I remember I was crying as I was trying to jiggle it through. And to that day, I still have, anytime I have a key has an issue, I still think about that moment of being like, wait, what do I do now? Where are my parents? What am I supposed to be doing now? Who do I call? But it is, it's like trusting yourself and realizing that you can figure it out and you will figure out a plan no matter what happens, good or bad. And I truly think that's a huge part of learning over the course of our lives that if we don't put ourselves out of our box, we never really understand how much we can handle. It's like those little things that make it for the big moments, right? Yeah. And every one of those little things is a brick in the wall, which gives you a sense of, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. I've done versions of this before. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I now I say with my kids, because, you know, when you're young, you sort of look at people who are middle-aged as I am and think, well, it all just came pre-packed, you know, right. you just went and did it. <laughs> exactly. And um, there's some sort key of share with magic them. formula. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, you know, social media and so on gives you this impression that it all right. just happens. So I feel it's really important to kind of share. No, it doesn't. And you yeah. make really, you know, you make real full starts and dumb moves and 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 all that kind of thing. But it's a part of the journey. It's a really important part of the journey. Yeah, it is an important part of the journey. Failure is as important as anything else, as all of those pivots to the side that you think are going to land you that amazing opportunity. So how did you find your way to the Elton John AIDS Foundation? Because you're in your 20s at this point, and Paris is not perhaps what you thought it was going to be in terms of the job opportunity. So you moved back? So I moved back and my husband, then boyfriend, sort of the last few months that I was there from sort of coming over and seeing me like once a month. And I was fully ready, assuming, of course, that I would have this huge French love affair. (laughs) I love your imagination, by the way, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) In the last few months that I was there, he was basically coming over every weekend. We were missing one another more and more. And it sort of, it decided me in a way that I definitely wasn't decided when I left. And I don't think he was either. So I came back Mm -hmm. to the UK and it's where my story takes a real left turn because really very soon, almost the day after I got back from Paris, my brother, my middle brother, who'd been living in Los Angeles and working in the film business, came back to London very, very sick and was in hospital. He was HIV positive and they diagnosed him with an HIV related illness called toxoplasmosis, which is a really, really horrible thing and is very deadly. The sort of life expectancy is, you know, a couple of months. And so I, oh, I came back full of the sense of, all right, I'm in love with this man. He's in love with me. I'm coming back to London. And the whole thing was suddenly very, very different. And in fact, he'd been misdiagnosed, which is an interesting sort of assumption that we still deal with because he was gay, because he was HIV. They just assumed that these terrible headaches he was having and other neurological problems were as a result of this illness. In fact, he had a brain tumor. And he was given a very short amount of time to live, but which he exceeded fairly dramatically. But his experience of being diagnosed with HIV and a lot of his friends the same 
and the sort of extreme fear and misinformation that was around at that time about the disease really struck me. I think the thing that struck me more than anything, because I knew all these guys, I'd grown up with them. They were mm. like a set of uncles, you know, they yeah. were the guys who, if I fell out with a boyfriend or if I, they're like, where is he? We're going to go and see him. <laughs> you know, they always had my back. They were amazing and funny and wonderful and kind. And, and suddenly they all started getting sick and dying. And the thing that struck me more than anything was if it had been, I don't know, cancer or heart disease or or some other kind of illness, people would have been hugely sympathetic. But yeah. the response by and large was, don't really want to talk about that. Let's yeah. just, oh, okay, let's move on. And I think it really hit my personal sense of injustice. I was really, I was really outraged and I wanted to do something. And I volunteered sort of part-time for a couple of charities. It wasn't really quite the role for me. And then someone said to me, Elton John has an AIDS foundation. And I, sorry, Elton, but I wasn't an Elton John fan. It wasn't like, that wasn't a huge draw Driver for me. Driver for you, yeah. And I thought maybe I better be careful with this because a celebrity-related charity, I'm not really sure yeah. whether that's kind of what I mean. Anyway, I said I would give it a go. And how could I help them? And in a very unromantic way, they said, we need someone to build us a relational database for all of our donors. And we're just starting to do multiple projects in the UK. And it was strangely enough, something I knew how to do because of my work running this journalist agency. So I said, okay. And I thought I'll look for something else. And then while I was there, I made some suggestions to them because I was seeing these guys all the time who were sick. I made some suggestions about fundraising and one particular suggestion about nutrition for people who were in hospital. And to my astonishment, they said, okay, let's go for it. Wow. And so we did. And the fundraising there were no pop-up shops then. So it was an idea behind a pop-up shop selling Elton's clothes called Out the Closet. And his then manager, John Reed, said to me, oh, good, so you'll do this. And I said, no, I'm just oh, telling you, I have a it's job. An idea. Just, it's an idea. It's just yeah. an idea. Oh, so you don't think it'll work? And I went, no, no, I do. I do. I do think it'll work. <laughs> when I, um, someone else runs it, yeah. <laughs> and when someone else runs it. And anyway, long story short, he persuaded me and a wonderful woman called Louise Fennell, who's a patron of the foundation, to sit on a floor for two weeks and price up Elton's clothes. And we opened this shop and it made more in three weeks than they'd made in a year. Wow. And they said, well, can you stay? And I said, look, one thing I would really love to do, it was at a time when people who had AIDS were really, you know, that wasting, that kind of yeah. very, very horrible image of people wasting away. And I wanted to do something about the way nutrition was supplied in hospitals. I spent a lot of time in hospitals with people and talking about how difficult they found it. So we did this nutritional program with five hospitals in London. And at the end of it, one of the nutritionists said, this is the first time since I've been doing this work that one of my guys has left having put on weight and there were tears pouring down oh. her face. Oh and goodness. I thought, this is different as yeah. a job. This is a different thing. And this is extraordinary. And so I said, yes, I will stay. You know, it's interesting. I'm in my 40s, and I've worked with so many gay men at Christie's over the years, and I had no real understanding of what the AIDS crisis was like, what it was like to live, especially in a place like New York. And over the years, 
over drinks or something, stories would come out. And my boss in particular, who I love so much, used to just say, he's like, you just have no idea how horrible it was. First of all, you were scared all the time that you were going to die. Second of all, you were scared that your friends were going to die. And then if someone got sick, it was like they just disappeared. And it was almost like there was no memory of them and there was no sympathy and there was no support. And I really can't even explain to you when I see these foundations that started at the grassroots of the Elton John AIDS Foundation and a number of other AIDS foundations and the work that you've done to not only provide life-saving drugs and move those things forward with other groups, but also the support and the ending of stigma is a huge tentpole for what you're doing. I imagine that that was transformative for the people who were going through it at that time and still is for the people who are going through it because this is not by any means over or frankly that close to over. And I know one of the things I remember saying this in the auction is one of the topping points is the Elton John AIDS Foundation is trying to end AIDS. It's not to just like, oh, we're going to do... No, that is a talking point. It is something that you want to do to end this for everyone. Because at this point, many of the underrepresented communities are the ones who are still suffering so mightily with this. Like in Africa, I know I have a friend who volunteers there and she's like, AIDS is prevalent. It's everywhere. And people live with it and they know that people are still going to die from it. And I feel like in America, we're all sort of like, oh, you know, you can have AIDS, but they have drugs that will keep you alive and you will eventually be okay. But it's still there for people all over the world. Yeah. And you've completely nailed it in terms of that is the challenge now because we have great testing. We have wonderful and largely affordable medication that not only keeps people safe and alive, but stops them from passing on HIV Mm -hmm. and really, really does. A lot of people don't believe this, but it really, really does. So in theory, you should be shrinking an epidemic, right? You just test people, you get them on treatment and you don't pass it on and you shrink an epidemic. But the challenge that we have is is still the stigma associated with it. It's not the stigma that I first encountered when I first started doing this work, but it's intense and it is the biggest barrier. And it's extraordinary to think that in some places it can be so intense, including discrimination and sometimes criminalization, that people will die alone rather than seek help that's available. So it's the big one. It's the one that we absolutely have to crack. Yeah, absolutely. To end AIDS. To end AIDS. Elton John got involved in this because of a little boy named Ryan. I remember in the 80s, this was the story, right? He was watching all of this around the stigma. And, you know, I can say as recently as when I was with you in March, I came in to do a sound check for the auction the next day. And I walked into the room and the team was there. And I was listening to the incredible artist, Rena, who was singing at that point, who sang the next evening and she was doing a sound check. And I'd been standing there for maybe 10 minutes and out of the corner of my eye, I looked over and I'm like, oh my God, that's Elton John sitting in a chair. He's here. He's so involved. So tell me a little bit about what it's like to work with someone who has this incredible celebrity status and the things that you have to be careful about as a CEO, about, you know, his involvement and what you're doing and continuing this legacy as you move this all forward in his name. Firstly, he's extraordinary because he is so passionate and so committed. And I know that sounds like, well, I would say that, wouldn't I? But having traveled with Elton in multiple places in Africa, been in the middle of nowhere, sitting in mud huts, traipsing through townships, he really, really cares about it. I don't know whether it's an artist's sensibility, but that ability to look at someone who has a completely different context, living environment, 
everything from you and connect with them, find a way to connect with them as you do with your music mm. has just been, it's very inspirational to be around and yeah. to watch. In terms of things to be careful of, I mean, we have this strange challenge, which an awful lot of nonprofits don't, which is more about what we say no to than what we say yes to. Mm. So there are tons of opportunities because of Elton and because of that Elton John halo to get involved in things which aren't necessarily really going to move our mission forward. They might be great from a publicity point of view. Mm -hmm. They might even be great from a fundraising point of view, but they're not really moving things forward in the way that we want to see. So I manage that as carefully as I can. And I think it's the reason why I ended up in this position as much as anything else is figuring out how to distill Elton and his passion and how he sees the world and the Elton John brand. Mm. What does that mean? How do you translate that into an organization and what it does and how it behaves? Mm -hmm. And I think it's particularly true when you have a very, very big charismatic figure who is at the top of an organization. And it's been, it's been a ride. It's been fantastic. How did you become the CEO from where you started? What was that path like internally at Elton John Eats Foundation? Because you're doing pop-ups. <laughs> I was doing pop-ups. The fundraising wasn't really my, that wasn't the driver. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in the work. I was still being propelled by this sense of the guys that I talked about and knowing that they, and thousands like them, like the people that you talked about in New York, were all going through the same thing. And I wanted to figure out, and this is where the management consultancy stuff comes in. I was like, there must be other ways of doing this, of getting things to people. I didn't understand the sort of microbiology of the research, so I couldn't be helpful there. So I started to expand the grants program from stuff that we did in the UK, and there were other people working on that as well, to really digging deep into the global AIDS epidemic and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And we funded a number of things that were quite transformational in terms of what they did. And I was excited and happy to do that. And then had some plans to move on to you know another big nonprofit where I could also work in the HIV space and so on. And then had a serious conversation with the then CEO and subsequently with Elton and his husband, David Furnish, about what's the vision? Where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And I think having over that period, as well as working for the foundation, been on other boards and committees for other charities, including I was on the committee of something called Comic Relief for a decade, looking at the breadth of their work, not just HIV. I really felt like I had a very clear vision of what an Elton John charity could do that other charities couldn't do. And so I was appointed head of the UK foundation. And then sometime after that, because there were two foundations originally set up, they decided to merge both of them and asked me to lead both of them. So what do you want for the Elton John AIDS Foundation to look like in the next decade? Where are you headed? Where are we looking to and to lead the Elton John AIDS Foundation? So I think there are a few things. One something that struck me very strongly in COVID and over the last few years has been the shift from agency and trust in governments to corporations. And simultaneously, and I see it in my kids, this sense of people in their 20s saying, 
I want to do something that has meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. It's fine for it to make money, but I also want to do something with meaning and purpose. So one of my goals, we're doing a very interesting program with Walmart across the whole of the United States mm. and in Walmart pharmacies, is how do you work with corporations and leverage their skills and their can-do and their products and their footprint in a way that isn't just about making money, but also makes their employees and their customers feel really good. I think there's a there there. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And then I guess personally, it would be about helping my kids, being supportive of my kids, finding their own passion and making their own mistakes and getting to something that gives them the sense of fulfillment and joy that I've been lucky enough to have doing mine. Well, I have no doubt that they are so proud of you. I mean, what an incredible fighter, as we've known since you were five years old, as it turns out, (laughs) and how lucky everyone is that you're fighting for them. And thank you so much for your time and for being on Claim Your Confidence. Where can we find you on social or what can we do to help the Elton John AIDS Foundation? Anything you want to shout out? This is your platform. Yes. So we have just launched something called the Rocket Fund, which Mm -hmm. is turbocharging our efforts all around the world, everything we do. The public campaign of this is called Let Your Inner Elton Out. I would love people to take pictures of themselves, letting their inner Elton out. If that means sequins and big glasses to you, fantastic. If it doesn't, if it means something else, then do that. But it speaks to the stigma we talked about earlier. It's about breaking down that sense of otherness, that sense of some people deserve care and support and some people don't. Everybody deserves it and everybody deserves to be their authentic self. Hashtag Inner Alton and at EJAF is our handle. Please go and have a look and have fun and help us with this campaign. Yes, this campaign is launching June 5th and I am doing it as well. I have a red feather skirt and a big pair of oversized sunglasses. So (laughs) it will be all over my Instagram. I hope you will do the same. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. I've loved hearing about your adventurous life. It makes me want to travel. And also just this incredible passion you have for doing good. I also want to leave everyone with one thought. Over the course of your life, Are you a fighter? And if so, what are you fighting for? And if there's nothing you're fighting for, maybe you should think about what that looks like and what you can do. So DM me, DM Anne, let us know what you're up to. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence from Newsstand Studios and Rockefeller Center. A huge shout out to Joe who makes everything run smoothly throughout. Have a wonderful week and I look forward to being with you again next week. 